Aristotle was Plato's most famous, though by no means most philosophically docile student. Together they dominated not only future philosophy for some centuries to come, but also presented even into our own time two quite opposed orientations. Both these facts their equal domination, their opposing orientations are represented in the famous fresco, School of Athens, by the Italian Renaissance painter Raphael. This fresco is situated in the Vatican in what once had been Pope Julian's II's study. There is Plato, the older figure, pointing up and Aristotle beside him pointing down. These two physically indicated directions are a bit misleading. After all, the abstract entities of Plato's ontology being non-spatio-temporal aren't up residing in some kind of Platonic heaven. They're nowhere in space. And Aristotle, for his part, could have been portrayed as pointing up since his ontology included what he called the unmoved mover, or the first cause, which he was prepared to call God. Aristotle's God was a rather um, self-involved God, since the unmoved mover, being perfect, must perform only the perfect action, which is thinking, and his thinking must be about the most perfect thing, which is itself. So <laughs> Aristotle's God spends all his time thinking about himself. Some philosophers regard this not as an argument for God on Aristotle's part, but rather as a reductio ad absurdum. Be that as it may, pagan though he was, Aristotle's inclusion in his ontology of an unmoved mover, aka God, the object of a love that keeps, according to Aristotle, the concentric spheres of the universe forever in motion, seemed to make his entire system amenable to translation into monotheistic terms. And so it was done in all of the three Abrahamic religions in Islam by the early medieval philosophers Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes, and in Christianity by Thomas Aquinas, and in Judaism by Maimonides. So entrenched in Christian theology did Aristotle eventually become during the latter medieval period, that he was referred to simply as the philosopher, and it was regarded as sacrilege to depart from his teaching. This includes his geocentrism, according to which the entire universe revolves around the earth in concentric spheres, a view which jibes well with a religious outlook that regards humanity as the special and crowning achievement of God's creation, the whole point of his creating cosmos. When the Copernican view, which describes the revolutions of our solar system quite differently with the Earth and all the other planets revolving around the sun, was first proposed, it was regarded by the church as blasphemy. Galileo, who advocated the Copernican system, was put on trial for heresy by the Inquisition and was forced to recant the Copernican position, supposedly muttering at the close of the trial, and yet it moves. So, through no fault of his own, Aristotle came to play a very regressive role in the advancement of knowledge. There's a danger when a philosophical view becomes captured by dogma, then it's really not being pursued in the Socratic mold at all. 
So if Aristotle included an unmoved mover, which could just as well be gestured to by pointing up what did Raphael mean by having Aristotle point down in opposition to Plato's pointing up? The artist was trying to visually represent the question that we've started to explore in the last two chapters on Plato, the existence of abstract entities. Plato's view led him to the belief that the objects were presented with in sensory experience, the concrete particulars of appearance, the red apples, the red roses, the red flags, only have their being because of the abstract entities that exist independently of them. The world of appearances can't be understood on its own terms, but rather demands that we go beyond that world, that we ascend in our understanding to abstract entities, which is the hidden reality that yields coherence to the world of appearance. And on this matter, on the ontological status of abstract entities and the corresponding matter of whether the world of appearances can be understood on its own terms without ascending to some other sphere of reality, Aristotle is diametrically opposed to Plato. He believed the world of appearance must be closely observed, for in its observable features there was knowledge to be gained as to form and function. There is in Aristotle an empiricism, a belief that sensory experience is a source of knowledge that is missing from Plato. And this epistemological difference, difference in how they regarded the reliable sources of knowledge, is reflected in the differing approaches they took to the problem of universals. And that's what Raphael is getting at with his having Aristotle point down and Plato point up. Aristotle's response to the problem of universals wasn't to deny the existence of abstract entities. He wasn't a non-realist when it comes to the problem of universals. There is such a position which is called nominalism or anti-realism. There's also another position called conceptualism or mentalism that holds that properties and numbers, etc. exist but as ideas in our heads. But Aristotle didn't reject Platonism on the basis of either nominalism or conceptualism. Rather, his response is one which we now call imminent realism. An imminent realist holds that there are abstract entities, whether properties, numbers, propositions, whatever, and that these things are independent of us and of our thinking. But imminent realists differ from Platonists in holding that these objects exist in the physical world, their existence is a matter of their being instantiated in physical stuff. Depending on the kind of object under discussion, that is, whether we're talking about mathematical objects or properties or propositions or fictional objects, the details of imminent realism are worked out differently. In connection with properties, the standard imminent realist view is that properties like redness exist only in the physical world. In particular, they exist in actual red things as aspects of those things and not as independent things. This was Aristotle's quite commonsensical response to Plato, and it has some plausibility. After all, if I'm staring at a red rose right here in space-time and I see its redness, then it seems quite plausible to say that its redness exists right where the red rose exists. And so the redness is just as spatiotemporal 
as the red rose is. There's nothing over and above that red rose. That is a thing shared by something else, say a red tulip. For Aristotle, properties exist where they are instantiated in physical stuff. But this physicalist refutation of Platonism becomes less plausible when we consider mathematical objects, such as numbers and sets, especially when we consider the infinity about which mathematics has gotten to discover so very much. And this, of course, is a development neither Plato nor Aristotle could have foreseen. Standard set theory, the kind we study today in mathematics, entails not just that there are infinitely large sets, but there are infinitely many orders of infinity of different magnitudes. There actually exist sets of all of these different magnitudes of infinity. There is simply no plausible way to take this theory to be about physical stuff. For Plato, the world of appearance was a deceptive place, riddled with contradictions that made him consign it to a place squeezed in between the absolutely non-existent realms of unicorns and dragons and the fully existent sphere of the non-spatio-abstract entities. For Plato, the ultimate explanations would need to be given in terms of the purely intelligible realm of abstract entities exemplified by mathematics. Aristotle's orientation and his response to his teacher's Platonism, his characteristic, was far more focused on the empirically given. He was, in fact, a superb observer of physical phenomena, most especially of biological phenomena. His explanations of them in terms of their form and function could be ingeniously on the mark. When it came to his explanations of inanimate matter, he could be just as ingenious, even if thoroughly wrong, since his physical theories were teleological. He believed that physical actions, such as a ball rolling off of a table and falling to the floor, was to be explained on the model of human actions. They were goal-oriented. The ball was actually trying to get to its rightful place on the ground, not mid-air. Aristotle's teleological form of explanation would likewise need to be overthrown in order for the physics of Galileo and Sir Isaac Newton to be launched in the 17th century. It's hard to say which philosopher, Plato or Aristotle, was more scientific or at least further along on the way to science. Modern science, especially modern physics and cosmology, is a blending of both Platonist and Aristotelian elements. The modern physics launched by Galileo and then Newton replaced teleological explanation with Mathematics. Recall that Newton's great work was entitled Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, Latin for Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, where in those days natural philosophy meant physics. So there is a point for Plato. But modern science is as heavily invested in the kind of close attention given to empirical observation as exercised by Aristotle. If physical theories are mathematically expressed, the data to be explained are those that come from close observation. And it's what we observe, whether those observations conform to the predictions of the theory or not, that have the power of toppling the whole theoretical edifice, no matter how beautiful its mathematics is. So it's both Plato and Aristotle in a kind of beautiful blending that gives us the modern science of physics.